Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Jay Price, and I'm the still pretty new campus pastor here at Triumph West. And just want to say again, thank you for uh, the very, very warm welcome that you've given us. We are really, really glad to be here. Um, our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is God's word. The story of Easter started a long, long time ago, eons ago. Before God created the heavens and the earth, before God breathed life into the human race, there was an angel named Lucifer. And Lucifer was one of, if not the most beautiful, wise, brilliant of all the angels that God had created. And for the longest time, he faithfully served and followed God. Somewhere along the line, Lucifer became intoxicated with power and control, status. Uh, really, he was absorbed by himself, and his pride grew out of control. It, 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 it corroded through him like, like battery acid. He had delusions of grandeur about, about taking over for God and taking over God's position and status. In fact, Lucifer became so deluded that he launched an actual rebellion in heaven. And he somehow convinced a third of the angels in heaven into joining him. They all wanted to have authority over themselves. They all wanted to be like God. So they started a war. They lost, obviously, I mean, they never had a chance. You know, sometimes you hear this, this idea out there that, you know, the, the forces of good are battling the forces of evil, and, you know, you just don't know who's going to win. That's baloney. I mean, God has more power in his little pinky finger than Satan and, you know, his fallen angels do all together. Well, uh, when Lucifer, who also goes by the name Satan, or even the devil, when, when Satan realized that he'd never be able to defeat God, he turned his fury then toward God's creation. 
The idea was, if he couldn't uh, destroy God, that he'd destroy then what God loved. Now, you might be wondering uh, how this could be possible. I mean, if Satan couldn't defeat God, how, how could he possibly destroy God's creation? Well, the key lies in the fact that, that when God created Adam and Eve, uh, the first human beings, our first parents, that God created them with, with a similar kind of freedom that he gave the angels, and that is the freedom to reject God, the freedom to rebel against him. Now, God didn't have to do it that way. Uh, God could have created all of us without that, without that freedom to rebel against him. He, uh, he could have made us in such a way, you know, that, that, that the moment we were born, that, that, that you know, our, our hearts would sort of be pre-programmed to, to worship God and only God, and we'd be locked into that default setting. But God didn't want minions. God wanted a family, a family who would trust and know and love and serve him. And Satan took full advantage of this. One day he slithered into the Garden of Paradise where Adam and Eve lived. Uh, And he started weaving this very tantalizing lie. He told them, first off, that they didn't have to obey God if, if they didn't want to. And that much was true. But then Satan told them that, that if they wanted to live life their way, that all they had to do was disobey God's command to not eat the fruit off this one specific tree in the middle of the garden. Because, he told them, once they ate that fruit, then they would have authority over themselves. Then, They would be like God. And that was a lie. But Adam and Eve bought it. They swallowed it whole, both the lie and the fruit. They rebelled. They they sinned. They, They turned their back on God. And in that instant, in that in that very moment, something deep inside of them shattered. And not just in them either, but in every human being that's ever come after them. Since that moment, every human being is born with with a a natural bent, with with a, a natural inclination to want to have authority over ourselves, to want to exalt ourselves above and over God. And because of that, Every single human being's connection with God is broken. There's a breach in the relationship. A brokenness that human beings can never, ever fix. Every human being is born under a curse, a curse of sin. Basically what that means is since we'd all rather be God than be with God, we are separated from God. And on that day, that that terrible day, can you even imagine how the devil must have strutted around or slithered around, gloating about causing that breach in God's relationship with his people? Can you imagine? 
Well, God cursed Satan for what he had done to his people and to their relationship. And then God made them a promise. God said, one day I will send a rescuer who will repair the breach, a rescuer who will heal the brokenness. I will send a savior who will make a way for a relationship to be possible once again. And then he said, and Satan, I want you to listen and listen good. You will injure my rescuer, but he will crush you. Well, the rescuer, of course, was Jesus. God, the son himself, would be the rescuer. Of course he was. There's no human being who ever could have been the rescuer. Every single human being, again, has that bent toward rejecting God. And because there's that breach in the relationship, humans can't go to God. It's impossible. And so God decided then that he would come to us in the form of a human, not just a human, but a human baby, no less, I mean, it's fascinating, really, that that all the other religions in the world, every single one of them, have prophets and teachers and gurus and books who tell you how to find God, how to find the divine. But Jesus is the only one who says, no, I am God, and I've come to find you. And and when you really think about this, when when you really think about what it means for God himself to to come down here and find us, well, I I mean, it's absurd how low and, and how humiliating this is. You know, sometimes I wonder if we really have any idea of the depth of God's love for us. That, that he would go to such absurd, uh, such extreme lengths to rescue us from our sin and to restore our broken relationship. That God himself w- would be willing to honestly humiliate himself to such a degree that he would appear on earth as a human baby. If the heavens can't contain the glory of God... How can a little baby? I mean, are we really supposed to just accept the idea of some mother burping God on her shoulder? Uh, Of some mother changing God's diaper? Yeah, we are. And the mother's name was Mary. She was a young peasant girl who was engaged to marry a carpenter named Joseph. And God sent both of them an angelic messenger to tell them that that they were going to be a part of the most important event to ever occur in human history. Less than a year later, Jesus was born. In that birth, God dialed down his glory. God rolled up his majesty. God made himself nothing and came to earth with skin on. A helpless, crying infant born in a backwoods, no-name town. But even with such humble beginnings, 
It was a huge, tangible step toward reconciliation between God and human beings. It it was an earthly appearance of God's long-promised rescuer. And Satan noticed this, and it made him nervous. So he hatched a plot to assassinate the baby Jesus. But that wasn't part of God's plan. And no one, not even the devil himself, could touch a hair on Jesus' head if it wasn't part of God's plan. So God sent a messenger and warned Joseph and Joseph and Mary, and the baby escaped, and Satan's assassination attempt failed. And then that baby grew physically, but also in wisdom and stature. And in having favor with basically everyone in his life, he grew to be a young man, grew toward becoming the rescuer of the human race. Jesus went public when he was 30 years old, his public ministry, and uh, he toured around the countryside of Palestine. He preached and he taught and he loved He told everybody about God's mercy and grace, and he didn't only tell them about it, he showed them what it looked like. He embodied God's forgiveness and acceptance. He healed people. He healed basically anyone who asked him. And people started to get really excited about Jesus and his ministry, and that buzz started to grow. People started saying, Maybe Jesus is the one true king. Maybe he really is God's rescuer. But not everyone, not everyone was excited about Jesus. It turns out the enemy had sunk his claws into some of the religious and political leaders. They felt threatened by Jesus. They were offended that he would dare question their traditions or dare to reinterpret their laws. They were irate that Jesus would even hint that that he was the son of God. So they swore they wouldn't rest until Jesus was executed. But again, there wasn't anything to worry about. I mean, after all, Jesus was the son of God. He was the rescuer. And God had protected Jesus from being killed before. So nothing would happen to him unless it was part of God's plan. So the people kept waiting, waiting for Jesus to step up as king, waiting for him to ascend and take the throne, for him to proclaim himself as the rescuer. But Jesus kept on not doing that. He had all kinds of opportunities to do it, but he never did. I mean, there was one time even where a mob tried to make him the king by force, But Jesus simply slipped away through the crowd. He said that his time hadn't yet come. But then things came to a head in the spring of the third year of his ministry. Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And after the meal, they went off to a garden area to pray which was nothing new. I mean, Jesus prayed wherever he went. 
But that night, if you listened to what he was praying, it was unnerving. Because he prayed about letting this cup of suffering pass by him. And he also prayed that ultimately he wanted God's will to be done and not his. And then the, that quiet night exploded with torches and soldiers and spears. And the religious leaders were behind everything. Jesus stood up and said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am. And the soldiers fell back like they were shoved by some kind of invisible force. I mean, Jesus could have called down a battalion of angels who, who would have come and laid waste to the soldiers and the accusers, turned them into piles of ash. But he didn't. Jesus didn't fight back. He didn't resist at all. He just held out his arms and let them tie him up and lead him away. They led him to the temple chambers where they conducted a mockery of a trial for him. I mean, they'd already decided he was guilty. They'd already decided that they were going to execute him. All they needed now was just some sort of legal technicality. And finally, they found it, their shameful legal justification. The high priest asked Jesus, is it true, I ask you in the name of the living God, are you the son of God? Jesus said, I am. And they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. They dragged him away. They brought him out to the courtyard and, you know, where they played this really cruel, awful game. They put a blindfold on him and started pounding him in the face with their fists. And every time they hit him, they said, prophesy, teacher, who hit you? If you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. They also mockingly put a purple robe on his shoulders and then they wove together a crown of thorns and they jammed it into his head. And they beat him over and over with a heavy rod while they shouted, Hail to the King of the Jews! And then they took their king, their rescuer, and they dragged him to the top of a hill. They stretched him out on a wooden crossbeam and they drove nine-inch rusty iron spikes through his wrists and both of his feet. And then they picked up the cross and they dropped it into a hole in the ground. And it was right there that the Son of God, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords was finally on earth high and lifted up on a cross on an instrument of torture and death. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And then he took a drink of sour wine. And from that cross, he roared, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in some mysterious way, the immortal one died in unspeakable suffering and shame. And then, I mean, can you even begin to imagine how Satan and his fallen angels must have howled about this? How they must have laughed and strutted around? How they must have gloated? How they must have just been running their mouths about this? Thinking that they had finally won, that Jesus was dead, and now God's stupid rescue plan was destroyed. They must have thought that they had finally, after all this time, won the war, that it was finally over. And you got to admit, it sure did look like it was over. The Son of God was dead. His cold, lifeless body lay in a borrowed tomb. But see, that was Friday. And Satan didn't know it. Not yet. But Sunday was coming. Because on Sunday, on the third day, some of Jesus' friends, a few brave, faithful women, came to tend to Jesus' body. And there were a bunch of Roman soldiers there too. They were guarding Jesus' body so that you know, no one tried to steal it. And just as the sun started to rise over the tomb where Jesus' body lay, the women at the tomb felt the ground rumble. It was soft at first, but the shaking kept getting harder and harder. And harder until finally it felt like like the whole world was coming apart at the seams. And then a streak of blinding light split the dawn sky in two. Like a thunderbolt from the right hand of God, an angel of the Lord bolted to the tomb. And the angel took that giant stone that was covering the entrance to the tomb, grabbed a hold of it, and flung it aside like it was nothing. And once the stone was rolled away, the angel stood on it as if daring the soldiers to go ahead, try and roll it back. And I promise you something, those Roman soldiers were not even thinking about it, trying to roll it back. In fact, the the angel scared those soldiers so badly that, that they literally passed out cold. All of them, they were all lying there like corpses. And then the angel, who, shining like a thousand suns, looked down at the women and he said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And they all found out that the angel was right. Jesus was alive. He was alive. They found out that death couldn't stop him. And the grave couldn't hold him. He was alive. And Satan was right about one thing. Oh, it was over, all right. It was over for him. 
But for the rest of us, it was a brand new beginning. Because just like God had promised all those years ago, Satan would injure God's rescuer, but the rescuer would crush the devil in all of his work. Jesus was alive. And later on, he proved it to his followers. I mean, literally hundreds of people saw Jesus after his crucifixion alive and well. Saw him with their own two eyes. And he explained to everyone that, of course, that this, all, all of this was, 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 had been the plan from the start. That Jesus had become a human being. He had been born into the world for the express purpose of dying and rising again from the dead. Why? So that he could repair the breach. So that sin and death and the devil himself would be crushed. So that a relationship between God and human beings could be restored. So that that breach was repaired once and for all. So that God can be with you and so that you can be with God right now and forever. And ever and ever and ever. And that, my friends, that is the story of Easter. And let me tell you why this matters. Or really, one of the many reasons why this matters. Think, think about it like this. If somebody dies and they come back to life, you know what? That is one dangerous person. Have you thought about that? Why is it a dangerous person? I'll tell you why. Because what are they scared of? Seriously, think about it. If someone comes back from the dead, tell me, what are they going to be afraid of? Nothing. Nothing. Someone who's come back from the dead, they ain't afraid of nothing. And that makes them dangerous. So, you know, we can all take our wimpy Jesus in a white bathrobe and we can forget about him. Because this Jesus, the real Jesus, is dangerous. He destroyed death, okay? And people who destroy death, people who aren't afraid of death, man, those are good people to have in your life, right? that's a good person to be around because there isn't anything that they can't handle. And so what that means then is that, that when you're a Christian, when, when, when you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, when you receive him by faith and give your life to him in response, then, then you've given your life to someone who is afraid of anything and who can handle everything. And here's why that's important. Because we can't. We can't handle everything that comes our way. Not even close. And the truth is that because of this, we get scared. A lot. We're afraid of all kinds of stuff. And so I want to ask you, and no one needs to answer out loud or anything, but I I still want to ask you, so what is it? What is it that you're scared of? 
Seriously, what are you afraid of today? What are you afraid might happen? What are you afraid might not happen or never happen? What are you worried about? What is it that you're afraid that you aren't going to be able to handle? I mean it. Please think about it. What are you afraid of today? Because look, uh, I know that some of you came here this morning and you're barely hanging on. You're discouraged, depressed, unhappy, you're worried, you're scared, and the pressure and the stress just keeps building and building and building. It's been building over the past week or the past month or for so many of us because of COVID over the past year. And we get overwhelmed. But God brought you here this morning for a purpose. God brought you here this morning so that he could say something to us in the midst of all this, in the midst of our fear. One of my favorite theologians, Martin Luther, puts it like this, and he puts it so well. So let me just finish this morning with this. Luther says, faith is trusting in Jesus. Faith is a firm trust that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stands in our place and has taken all our sins upon his shoulders and that he is the eternal satisfaction for our sin and reconciles us to God the Father. And he who has this faith, neither the devil nor hell nor sin can harm him. Why? Because God is his protector and defender. And when I have this faith, then I am certain that God is fighting for me. So I can defy the devil. I can defy death. I can defy hell and sin and all the harm they threaten me with. This is the great never-ending treasure that's given to us in Christ, which no one can adequately describe or grasp with words. He says, you truly have nothing to fear when you believe that God steps in for you and stakes all that he has and his precious blood for you. It is as if Jesus himself is saying, come with me. Fall in behind me without fear and without delay and then let's just see what can harm you. Come devil, Come death, come sin and hell and all creation. Let them come because I will go before you. I will be your shield and your great defender. Trust me. Boldly rely upon me, says the Lord. Anyone who believes that cannot be harmed by devil, hell, sin, or death. That's why God brought you here today, to tell you that. Amen? Amen. Listen, please. This, this, if, if we could take everything we talked about today and put it into a sentence and take it home with us, here it is. 
Because Jesus Christ lives, you can face tomorrow, no matter what tomorrow brings. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are here today, and, and we're just so grateful for hearing again the story of, of how you conquered death on our behalf. Um, but Lord, we pray that you would help us tomorrow. You know, when the Easter dresses get put away and the candy's gone and the ham is sitting in the fridge and we all get back to our everyday life, help us to not forget. Help us to not forget that, that your resurrection is actually a year-round daily celebration over fear. Fear of tomorrow, fear of yesterday, fear of today. And maybe especially fear of death. So help us all to not forget that as we stare death in its ugly, terrifying face, that you are there You are our shield, you are our great defender, and you will keep us safe from sin, death, and hell forever and ever and ever and ever. We're your church, Lord, and we believe this. But oh, Lord, help our unbelief. For we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.